Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you and uh, we seek to know what it means to have a God who came to call sinners. Father, teach us who are sinners, what makes them sinners, what is the life of a sinner, what is your plan, what is your hope for sinners, what are you trying to call them out of and into You came in in such a dramatic fashion. The creator, the God of the universe, to step inside his creation. To call us. To show us who we are. But who we can be. So today, Father, send your spirit. Spirit, confront us. Confront us with your truth. Confront us with your love. Confront us with your desire for us. What your calling for us is. Spirit, redeem those who might need it. And further us who know you as their redeemer in our righteousness and holiness. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, this is a really famous passage, obviously. Many of you have probably heard uh, sermons on this before. It's a pretty well-known story, um, a pretty outlandish story to many. Um, but I think it's a, a beautiful story, a story that um, gives us a, a perfect picture of who we are, uh, not just who um, the people of uh, Nineveh are or the, people, uh, or the person who Jonah is, but who all of humanity is. And so we are going to spend some time today uh, fighting and wrestling with God in that, re- that reality. I think in Jonah's rebellion um, against God's calling on his life, um, we see ourselves, and there's four things I want to talk through as we try to wrestle with this idea of God calling sinners. I think the reason why God needed to call sinners, uh, or at least the ones I'm going to talk about today, are four. Uh, One, we have a misunderstanding of sin. Two, we have a misunderstanding of our nature. Three, we underestimate the consequences of sin. And and four, we underestimate the glory of the gospel. Again, we uh, misunderstand sin. We misunderstand our nature. We underestimate the consequences of our sin. And we underestimate the glory of the gospel. We're going to spend most of our time in those first two uh, today, starting with a misunderstanding sin. So i just break down our story as we, we build to this understanding of uh, how we misunderstand sin. Uh, Nineveh was a great city, huge. It's assumed around 600,000 people, huge for that time. It was probably one of the three or four, maybe five t- most populated cities in the world at, the, at this time. Hugely important um, and very well known, but not always for the best reasons. But the question before us is, why did Jonah rebel? Why did he sin? And the answer, like your high school textbooks, is found in the back of the book. Uh, 
your math textbooks anyways. So that's why we read uh, the last chapter, the first three verses, uh, four, chapter 4. Let me read it again, just 2 and 3. This is why Jonah didn't want to go. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah understood that when God said, I want you to go to Nineveh, and this is what he's told him, to go and preach against. He didn't say, I want you to go teach or preach to, but to preach against. In other words, I want you to go and show the people of Nineveh your hearts, your desires, your passions, your lives are against me. That the message might be to show them that they're against God, but the hope was not that God would remain separated and against them, but that they would find redemption. And so Jonah knew that while the message might appear against and was in fact against God, God himself was not completely against the people of Nineveh. He wanted redemption. He wanted to not have to overthrow them, which would come if they didn't repent. We see uh, Jonah in uh, chapter 3 when he is expelled from the fish and ends up in Nineveh. He says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. If they don't repent, they'll be overthrown. If they don't see that they're in God's wrath, in the direct path of God's wrath, in 40 days, they'll be overthrown. And Jonah wanted them to be overthrown. Jonah Jonah wanted God's wrath to destroy them. And so he knew if he went with this message against Nineveh, some of them might end up not against God. And so he ran away. Jonah did not like the people of Nineveh, obviously. He had a deep-seated dislike for them. Why did he dislike them? Assyria, uh, the, the Assyrians, uh, or the people of Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which is today Iraq. Um, in that time, in that place of, in history, was, again, we talked about it, it's one of the biggest uh, empires, one of the biggest uh, cities in the world. Um, it was might possibly be the biggest, most violent, terrible, imperialistic, oppressive powers in the world, perhaps ever at that time, but certainly perhaps during that time, the one. They had already consumed countries, they had overthrown them, they had enslaved them, they have subjugated them, they had killed and maimed and mocked and abused many people to this point. In Israel, Jonah's country had been threatened by Assyria. 
So when God said, go and preach against, Jonah heard, go and help me to redeem. And Jonah thought, I think, one of two things. One, if I go and do this, and these people are redeemed in some way, they're not overthrown, there's a possibility that in the future those threats against Israel might become actual violence against Israel. People I know, people I love, people I'm committed to, people who are God's designed bearer of the Messianic tribe. Also, Jonah might have been thinking, these people are just plain evil and they are not worthy of God's love. They are not worthy of redemption. So Jonah is told to go, and Jonah decides, I'm going to get on a boat, and I'm going to go the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. I'm going as far away from Nineveh as I can. And so God sends a storm, as we read. And this was not just any storm, because these sailors on the boat were like, okay, this is not just a regular storm. We have to do something, because this appears to be like something from God, and we need to appease him somehow. And so they start trying to figure out who might have sinned, who might have messed up, who might God be mad at. And they're trying to figure this out, and Jonah's sleeping. These are professional sailors. They're worried about this storm, and Jonah's like, I'm good. I'm going to take a nap. I'm sleeping this one through. He was so committed to running from God, so separated from any type of compassion and empathy towards Nineveh that he was willing to let Nineveh be destroyed. He was probably thinking, if I don't go and tell these people, then God's wrath is going to hit them square on and destroy them. And that's what I want. And he felt so good about himself that he was able to sleep through the storm cared so little for God and so little for God's people that he was willing to, he was able to sleep through the storm. But the sailors ended up waking him up because they're afraid, terrified of the storm. And ultimately Jonah says to them, listen, just throw me overboard. So committed, again, to running from God's calling to go and Call sinners in Nineveh. So, uh, uh, apathetic to the lives of the people of Nineveh that Jonah says to God, I'd rather die. And to the sailors, I'd rather die than go and help these people. To go and speak to these people. So, As we know, Jonah ultimately is thrown over, and he is swallowed by a fish, fish, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days. Everybody likes to say he's swallowed by a whale. Most people like to say it anyways. There is a word for whale. It wasn't used. What does this mean? It means it was a fish. (laughs) What fish? Don't know, but it wasn't a whale. Was it a fish? That God made specifically for this situation? Possibly. Is there fish we don't know about? I don't know, maybe. I'm not an expert on on fish. Sorry. 
But it was, does not appear certainly to be a warm-blooded mammal. It was a fish. And Jonah was swallowed into the belly of this fish for three days. He was in this cold, dark reality for three days. Ultimately, he relents and he prays to God for compassion and to be relieved of his struggle. And so he heads to the city. He's expelled from the fish. And he heads to the city. And he goes and he tells the people what God told him to tell him. In 40 days, God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. You're going to be overthrown. And we're told that all of Nineveh repents following the lead of their king. And Jonah, after this has been done, and his uh, great repentance which is used very loosely here, decides my next step is I'm going to go complain about this to God, as we read. And he wanders to a place where he can sit and watch Nineveh and see what happens to the Assyrians there. So he finds himself a place. He can watch the city. He builds himself a little hut, a little shelter. And... uh, to shade himself, he's, again, this is, would be Iraq, so it's a hot, dry place in many areas. He finds a place he can watch him, uh, see what becomes of this redeemed city. Um, I, we're not told exactly what help happens to this shelter that, he's, that he builds, but the next verse is, God grows a plant that goes up and over Jonah to provide shade. Likely, there was time that went past, and the shelter failed or faltered in some way. It started to wear, or Jonah, perhaps, as a prophet, is not the greatest carpenter in the world. I don't know. But the shelter didn't last. And so God sends a plant to grow up and over Jonah to provide himself from shade. And in chapter, verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, God did so to save him from his discomfort. This, we're told, brings gladness to Jonah. But the next morning, God sends a worm to eat the plant, to destroy the plant, to make it wither. And then God sends a hot wind towards Jonah. And once again, he asks to die. You can read along with me in verse 9 of chapter 4. But God said to Jonah, you, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Now, if you were paying attention, you might have heard me say there's probably 600,000 people in that city. Uh, This interpretation, persons here, is usually interpreted children, and uh, by that number, they use uh, that number to get to the 600,000 total people. But he says that they don't know their right hand from their left, and also there is much cattle there. Jonah again, shows his dislike for the Ninevites, his apathy to them. He cares more about the plant than he would about the people there. Again, Jonah's hatred or fear of the Ninevites is reigning supreme in his life. 
fear that they, if they're not overthrown, might harm him and Israel, people he loves, or they're just not worthy of having a relationship with God. They are far too sinful in Jonah's eyes for that. I think in these two reasons, we see our heart. All of humanity's heart is laid bare. We see the reality of sin. We cannot accept God and God alone as our treasure and as our peace. We need more. Um, There's an author named Harold Kushner. He wrote a book, I guess a couple decades back now, called uh, When Good Things Happen, or When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You might have heard of it. It was on the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, And then later he wrote another book called How Good Do We Have to Be? And in it, he spends a long time talking about Genesis 3, uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, their sin at the uh, tree. And uh, he says uh, this about it. He says, The account of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, as I see it, is a mythical description of how the first human beings left the world of animal existence behind and entered the problematic world of being human. It is the biblical account of evolution, seeing the difference between humans and animals in moral rather than anthropological terms. Later he says, I don't believe that eating the tree of knowledge was sinful. I believe it was one of the bravest and most liberating events in the history of human race. The person who has experienced the complex, hard-earned satisfaction of human existence, there is no doubt that it was worth the pain. The difference is the ability to know right and wrong. The difference is the ability to know what is good and what is not too good. That's what the difference is between humans and animals. And that was the step that was needed for that to happen, is what he argues. And he says, the notion that we were supposed to be perfect, that we could expect others to be perfect, that leaves us feeling constantly guilty, permanently disappointed. Later he says, religion properly understood is the cure for feelings of guilt and shame, not their cause. So he wanted to deal with guilt. He wanted to deal with shame. And what he ultimately says is, look, if God says to Adam and Eve, do this, but he doesn't tell them why, they can't be held accountable. They were given no real reason to listen. But he says something like, if God had done something like pop the v, uh, uh, actually let's if God had flipped on Hulu and pulled up a stream a five minute stream of all the evil that would pursue in humanity as a result of them eating this apple, they would have said, "Okay, we won't do this." But also, because he didn't do that, they can't be considered guilty. He didn't tell them why not to eat the apple. Sounds almost reasonable, but when you understand the core of the argument, I think it gets to the heart of our sinful nature, but also shows us the awesomeness of our triune God and what his design for creation really is. See, he says, if God showed up to Adam and Eve, showed Adam and Eve the evils and pains of the world that would fill the world if they ate it, they would have been, they would have been accountable. But they also would not have sinned. 
In other words, he's saying, you know, how dare God give them a command without a reason? Without a reason, it's totally arbitrary. Here's where the disconnect, I think, with our heart lies. If I were to say to you, why do you love somebody? You're going to ultimately say to me, I find them attractive in some way. Physically, personality, similar interests, sex is good, social status, wealth. I find them attractive in some way. But when you say those things... What you're actually saying to the person you're trying to tell that you love them is, I love something else to which I can get from being in a relationship with you. So when you talk about how you love someone because of how they look physically, what you're saying is, I love your form that feeds my lust. Or I love you as a trophy I can take to my friends and say, look at this hot piece I got. When you say you love someone's personality, you're saying, look, I love to laugh. I love to be calm. I love to be challenged intellectually. And you help me do that. When you say we have similar interests, you're saying, look, I love to hike. I love to go to plays. I love to... um, sit down and stream TV shows for hours and hours. But I love to do it with company. When you say the sex is good, again, you feed my lust. You bring physical pleasure to me. I love physical pleasure. And you are the apparatus to which I can use to achieve it. When you speak of social status, I love a certain amount of fame, a certain amount of fandom, a certain amount of approval, and I can use you to get it. You speak of wealth. There's a certain amount of things I want to have, I want to own, and I can use you to get it. See, real love is not about what you can get from something. And so anytime you answer the question of, why do you love me, with something other than for you, You're saying to them, I love something to which I can use you to get. And when we demand from God to say to us, here's why, we're saying to God, I need you, but I need something else greater. What is the other thing I'm getting out of this relationship? What is the real thing that I need that I can get from my relationship with you? What's the real benefit? Why do I need to be in a relationship with you? In fact, if God had given them a reason, it would have been an even greater temptation to sin. See, we never merely leave God because we value him little. We always exchange God for what we value more. It's not simply a low view of God that causes us to sin. It's a high view of other things. So we sin when we go to God and say, what else do I get out of this? 
I have real needs here, God, and you are not enough. How am I getting these other things from you? We tend to think of sin in small boxes. It's actions and behaviors that we just don't like. And in Jonah, we see the reality of what sin really is. Jonah went to God and he said, If you don't overthrow these people, I might lose something important to me. My health, the health of my family, the health of my friends, the health of my nation, um, or the purpose of my nation to be the messianic bearers, the redeemers. And so, God, I can't be obedient to you because I need this nation more than I need you. He also said to God, oh, God. I, I understand sin. I don't, you clearly don't understand sin here. Like, I understand the, how terrible these people are. You, you don't see it, apparently. These people are not worthy of being forgiven or restored in any way. He likely did so because in his self, he was trying to prove how good he was. And in order to prove how good you are, you got to confront yourself with one of two realities. The lawgiver or fellow lawbreakers. Confronting yourself with the lawgiver is very difficult when it's a holy God. Comparing yourself to fellow lawbreakers is much easier. And that's likely, that's the most likely route most of us go. And so Jonah couldn't trust God with his righteousness. I like to define sin as the pursuit of God and his good things outside of how God has told us to pursue, experience, and enjoy those things. Why? Because we trust those things more than we trust God, and so we pursue those things outside of how God says, these are how you enjoy and experience these things. Piper says, uh, my definition of sin is this. Any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. The bottom of sin, the root of all sins, is such a heart. A heart that prefers anything above God. A heart that does not treasure God over everything else and everyone else. So if you have gone through life at any point and you have not thought as you're making decisions, what does God want from me? You have not thought, how does this help me to grow in my relationship with God? If you have not thought, what does God Desire for me in this very instant. You have sinned. Because sin is not purely an action. Sin is where our treasure lies. Sin is saying to God, I don't trust you, I need something else. I can use you to get this thing, but you yourself is not enough. The great... uh, 
prof- uh, or preacher Martin Lord Jones uh, said it this way. The fatal mistake is to think of sin always in terms of acts and actions rather than in terms of nature and of disposition. The mistake is to think of it in terms of particular things instead of thinking of it as we should in terms of our relationship to God. Do you want to know what sin is? I will tell you. Sin is the exact opposite of the attitude and the life which conform to thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And if you are doing that, if you're not doing that, you are a sinner. It does not matter how respectable you are. If you're not living entirely to the glory of God, you are a sinner. And the more you imagine that you are perfect in and of yourself and apart from your relationship with God, the greater is your sin. I don't know about you all. I do know, but I will not presume for your sake how much so. But I know that if I were to judge my heart, my mind, my strength, and say, is that being used in totality for God's glory and in pursuit of God, I fail much more than I I do uh, live in holiness. Which means for all of us, we are sinners. One of the ways we misunderstand sin is we think there are worse sinners than us. Or we think that we ourselves are not sinners. Because you're comparing your actions to someone else, you're not comparing your treasure, you're not comparing your heart. You're not comparing how trusting you are to God, with God. Romans 3 tells us, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Everyone who has walked this earth is a sinner except for Christ. There is no distinction. Which means we misunderstand our nature. Romans 3 again, 19 through, or 9 through 19 reads as such. You can actually turn there. Romans 3. You want to head to the New Testament. You have the Gospels. Acts, Romans. I'm going to start reading verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. Not one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom 
of asses under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet is swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in, the, in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul and the rest of Romans tells us in, in chapter 6, verse 14, that sin holds dominion like the Lord. It enslaves like a slave master in 6, 6, and 6 16 and 17 and 6, 20, um, to whom we've been sold, 7, 14, as a force that produces other sins in 7, 8, as a power that... Um, Seize the law and kills as a hostile occupying tenant uh, for who dwells in us in 717 and 720. And as the law that takes us captive in 723. We, in our nature, are not good people. We are enslaved to sin. We are bound to it. Our nature is sinners. Our nature is against God. Which is why he sent Jonah to preach against Nineveh. Because their nature was against God. John 3, 6, we're told, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Your nature is the flesh. You live for your flesh, not the spirit, not God. You are against him. Here lies the second thing wrong with Kushner's understanding of Eden. That his understanding that with the right knowledge and motivation, we would be good. Martin Lone Jones put it this way. Human willpower alone is not enough. Human willpower is excellent, and we should always be using it. But it's not enough. The desire to live a good life is not enough. Obviously, we should all have that desire. But it will not guarantee success. So let me put it thus. Hold on to your principles of morality and ethics. Use your willpower to the limit. Pay great heed to every noble, uplifting desire that is in you. But realize that those things alone are not enough. You will never, they will never bring you to the, desired, to the desired place. We have to realize that all of our best is totally inadequate. See, God doesn't leave us as purely sinners. He give us, gives us common grace. He gives us... A conscience. He gives us moral law. He gives us an understanding of what is good and what is right. And so many of us go, I, I understand these good and right things. And I'm good at following them. But the reality is we're not. The reality is what our hearts want most, our minds find reasonable. Our emotions then find them valuable, and our will finds them doable. What our hearts want most, even when they go against what we know is good, will become valuable to us. And therefore, we will pursue them. Some of you may say, that's not true. I don't see that as my reality. 
So I would challenge you to go home and think, what is important to you? What do you know is good? Write it down. Commit yourself to pursue that good every moment of the next week. Find out how good you are at being obedient to that. How much your self-control allows you to follow your heart or your mind or your emotions in light of that good. And how much your heart and your emotions and your mind follow what your true treasure is something other than that good. If you go a whole week, congratulations, you're better than I am. I find it unlikely that you will do so, but if you do, your next option is, I'm wrong, Brian's wrong, Bible might be wrong, but I'm going to try maybe another week, see how I do. If you can pursue something you know is good on an absolute sense and a moral sense and do it perfectly, then what the Bible says about you as a sinner is not true. And the Bible is probably not true. But if you find yourself failing, as the Bible says you will, you need to understand what your sin really is. Spurgeon puts it this way. Sin is a deliberate treason against the majesty of God, an assault upon his crown, an insult offered to his throne. At our heart, we are people within our king's kingdom committing treason, trying to overthrow him and use his kingdom for our own selfish uh, delights. We therefore underestimate our consequences. People who are uh, consumed by sin are desperate and broken. Because we've not given our hearts to God, we're going to give them to something. It is our nature to pursue hope and joy. Hope, though, demands submission. It demands love. It needs to have a place of kingship in our lives. It is what we're going to for help and ultimately salvation. Not use. Hope demands submission. It must be bigger than you to be what you hope in. We, it is so because we were created, created to find our hope in our God who is most definitely bigger than us. But we're separated from it. And so our nature is to submit to other things, to put other things in that place. But all these other things are inadequate. And so we're always left wanting. Again, God provided that plant to grow up over Jonah to provide shade and save him from his discomfort. But see, God gives us his good things, his common grace, to give us a glimpse, a taste of his goodness. But there is no real goodness, no real taste of joy apart from him. And so he gives us these tastes to direct us to himself. But he doesn't let us have them so long that we're fooled into thinking we're in a good place with God. 
he takes away these things. When we say to God, I need you, and he gives us a glimpse of the end, through the end, he gives us a glimpse of his glory. He gives us a, a taste of what it is to love just him and his grace for us and his hope that us separated human beings, that us rebellers in our taste will find and seek after him. But of course, most of us are not that terribly bright because of our nature. Not terribly uh, um, quick to respond to God and his uh, glimmers of hope that he gives us and allows in our lives. And so we end up in the fish. For a lot of us, I think we think of sin as, look, there's some bad consequences, but, you know, life goes on. The picture of the fish is what sin is. It's emptiness. It's darkness. It's to be separated from the things that we put our hope in. In the belly of the fish, Jonah was confronted with the reality of, I have nothing in my life now other than the thought of God. There's nothing in here to partake in, to give me brief glimpses of joy, to just distract myself from the emptiness and the darkness of this place. Only the reality of God and why he ended up in the fish, his rebellion. The reality is all sin leads us to that place of emptiness and that place of darkness. We're hoping something Uh, that has no possibility of giving us fulfillment will. And that can only lead us to a place of darkness and emptiness. But we remain so very desperate, and so we continue to cling and hold on to other things and try new things. And again, all this does is it leaves us unable to love each other always needing something alongside in our relationships with each other. Brokenness, selfishness, decay, destruction, sleeping during the pain of others, hoping for their destruction. If these evil people would just stop doing that stuff, if they would be destroyed, the rest of us good people would have a good life. These people are so evil, they're not worthy of my empathy and compassion. So too does our guilt problem. So again, I mean, we've tried to live righteously in order to gain favor with God, to appease our guilt and shame. But we have not found the kind of favor we hope for, which is usually peace through earthly treasures. But it's also the re- not, it also is the non-removal of our guilt and shame our sense of inadequacy. So we have to deal with that reality. And again, one of the few ways in which we do this is to compare ourselves to others. So we have to go through life needing people who are worse than us. Needing people who are not as valuable and worthy and good as us. Whether their goods and bads are seen in our eyes and reality or not. If we don't have someone who's doing something clearly bad in our lives, we're going to make up something that is bad in someone else's lives because of how desperately we need to appease our guilt and our shame. 
We are all Jonas, and we're all Assyrians. None of us can look around and say, I am better and I'm good enough for God because of how evil these other people are. And none of us are going to find in this world the treasure to which we can say, yeah, God, uh, you're cool, but now that I got this, I'm good. As long as you're hoping for a this besides God, you're always going to use people to get that. The good news, though, is we underestimate the glory of the gospel. Matthew tells us uh, when some Pharisees came to him and they said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of the, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That, for us, is Christ. The better Jonah... The reason Jonah was thrown into the water and not into the wrath of God was because Jesus Christ was thrown into the wrath of God. The reason the storm could be calmed when the sailors threw Jonah overboard was because the father was going to throw his son overboard. The reason the oppressive and abusive hands of the Syrians could be redeemed is because the father was going to hand over his son to us, human beings, the oppressive and abusers. And Christ was willingly going to lay down his life into our hands, the oppressive and abusive. Christ came, God steps into our reality in the, in the garden, or I mean in the uh, manger, and lives holy and perfectly in obedience because his fulfillment was in his relationship with the other members of the triune God with the other persons of his trinity. His love was perfect for them. Their love was perfect for him. And he had great joy, great fulfillment. And so he lived freely, not enslaved. And he ends up in a garden in a dark place. And he says to his friends, pray for me. Deep sorrow is upon me. And his friends, sleep. Because to them, they still had a relationship with Jesus, so it was you and. And they slept. Broken. But Christ is not like the older brother and the prodigal son, who when his uh, younger brother was broken and had gone astray, sat at home and thought, He deserves what he's going to get. And also when his younger brother returns to the father and he's restored, said to the father, I can't, I can't relate with you. Just as Jonah did when he looked at the Assyrians and he said, they deserve what they're going to get. And then afterwards said to God, I can't relate to you. Christ was the perfect older brother, the perfect Jonah who said, I don't relate to you. I've lived perfectly and holy but I desire a relationship with you. I desire 
to have you know the love and the fulfillment I know. And so he dies in our place. He takes our sins and our punishment and in, on himself and he redeems the greater Jonah, the, bra- the greater older brother. And he celebrates when sinners return to him. He calls us, come to me and I will carry your burdens. He restores us to a fuller joy, a joy we'll never, uh, we'll never know in its fullest until heaven, a greater joy than we can ever know here. See, he calls us to a new life, a new creation, a peace in our pursuit for order here because we are not created to find our treasure here in this world and in this earth. We're not redeemed to spend eternity in this fallen world. We're redeemed to a new creation, a new world, to an eternity of perfect unity and relationship and joy. And so as we pursue order here, we have a peace because we don't need to bring it. We don't need to have peace here to know that our peace is coming. We don't need peace totally here to know that total peace is our future. We don't need to fix every broken relationship here to know that someday I will be in a place of no broken relationships. For some people, some of this will all sound like a myth. That there's no real moral absolute to which we can be found guilty of. There's no God who um, is sitting in judgment over us and there's no God that did something to redeem us out of that. And you, you want peace and order in this world in light of the reality of this world. See, in his book, uh, What is Good Enough, he really address, does not address at all the reality that there are people who, whose issue, is, he says, is not in excess of guilt and shame, but the absence. Or I read, was reading a, a review of it, I should say, and he, one of the critiques was his book doesn't address the people whose issue is not an excess of guilt, but the absence of it, or not enough. I think everyone who has rational thought, though, lives with the reality of guilt. We just don't respond to it in a good way. And so... We have to face the reality of the world is broken. It's full of sinners. How do we do that without a God who has no wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a cross, a Christ without a cross? I don't know. I have no hope for that world. But I do have a world for a God who is judge, judging and cares about people who are hurt by sin, even our own to ourselves cares so much that he went to the cross to redeem us out of it. Let's pray. Father, you desire for us such a great life. A life in relationship with you, finding our our hope and our trust met completely and fully in you and you alone.
but we can't trust you. We fail so often. And so we say thank you, Christ. Thank you, Father, for your plan of redemption and Christ, your willingness to be the greater Jonah, to be our place of real hope, to come and preach against us, but to die for us. The uh, sailors prayed that they wouldn't be, they wouldn't lose their life for throwing Jonah overboard. That they wouldn't be held accountable for the sins of Jonah. And you, Christ, said, Father, I will go and be held accountable for the sins of Jonah, for the sins of Brian, for the sins of all humanity, every sinner. I will go and be held accountable. Overthrow me. Toss me into the depths of darkness and despair. Cast me into the belly of the fish so that I can redeem our creation. Those who will say, those who will respond to my acts and my truths with repentance. Spirit, help us to repent. Help us to see that we are sinners in need of you. That you and you alone offer what our hearts long for. Call us. Receive us because of your work, your truth. In your name we pray. Amen.